Hey everyone, welcome to the Voice for Israel podcast. Visit us at voiceforisrael.com and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other fine podcasting services. Our big topic today is how to talk to children about the Holocaust. I'm your host, Peter Reitzes in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Our guest today is Rabbi Fred Gutman, who is the rabbi of Temple Emanuel in Greensboro, North Carolina. Rabbi Gutman has been the chair of the Israel Foreign Affairs Subcommittee of the Commission of Social Action for Reform Judaism and has been instrumental in helping draft several significant Union for Reform Judaism resolutions, including resolutions on torture and human rights. Rabbi Gutman is highly involved with the International March of the Living, which is an annual education program bringing individuals from around the world to Poland and Israel to study the history of the Holocaust. Welcome to the podcast, Rabbi Gutman. Thank you so much. So let's dive right into it. Hard questions first. Uh, At what age do you recommend speaking to children about the Holocaust? Okay, so let's understand that as an educator, and I, I used to be a high school principal and I have a degree in secular education, I understand that one of the purposes of education is to teach the culture of the particular group that is um, facilitating the education. So as Americans, we teach uh, American culture, civics or whatever, at least we used to. I'm not sure that we were successful in that. And it, it, it's very important to understand that uh, uh, were I an African-American, the uh, culture that I would be teaching regarding slavery, regarding the abuses of, of slavery and Jim Crow, or what I call today James Crow es- Esquire or George Floyd, and all of that would be very different than what I would, what my overall cultural and educational goals would be for teaching Jewish kids. So, for example, and by the way, and the other aspect of it is just that um, that as we move from slavery prior to the Civil War into the Holocaust, we're talking about a very, very different time period, wherein uh, graphic pictures and everything and horrific scenes are are much more available uh, for the uh, Holocaust. So, that being said, I think it's important to understand that as a Jewish educator, um, my purpose is, is first and foremost to make Jews want to be Jews, not to make Jews want to be Jews because somebody else uh, said we have to be or somebody else has persecuted us or something like that. I want them to be Jews, to be proud of who they are as Jews, to be proud of the fact that, that we have the high holidays, but be especially proud of the fact that we have uh, we celebrate Passover every year. Be especially proud of the fact that we realize that is even though we have a liberate been liberated, uh, others uh, uh, still need liberation. Others still need uh, human dignity, and that that's the message of Passover. And that's a message, one of the essential messages of Judaism. Whether it's strangers, immig- immigrants, people who are oppressed, justice and the pursuit of, of justice, as well as the joy of dancing with the Torah on Simchat Torah. I want them and I want children to know all about that. I want them, I'm spending Shabbat tonight with my three-year-old grand, grandson, and we're going to be singing a song, Shabbat is here, Shabbat is here. I'm go- so glad that Shabbat is here. 
I want the joy of Jewish life to be communicated first. And for that reason, in our educational program, we really don't start with much on the Shoah, much on the Holocaust till about the seventh grade. And now I know that there'll be people that think that that's too late, but quite frankly, I would, I would vociferously disagree because I think that, that it's very difficult for children to understand this and to not get freaked out and to not uh, be turned off to the overall Jewish message that I want to give them. Now, having been, having that uh, been said, I think it's important to understand that the way I teach Holocaust and uh, uh, Holocaust studies to the seventh and eighth and ninth graders is very different than I would do to what um, I could call what I would call second stage adolescence. Uh, there's many similarities, but they're very, very different as well. Even with the middle schoolers, I'm interested in um, I'm, I'm interested in things that we can teach them that will help them understand not the the horrific things, but but the uniqueness of the Nazi Holocaust and particularly how Jews respond. Would you, would you like for me to give you an example? Yes, please. Okay. So one of the, the, it's an old book, but one of the books that I still really love for teaching mi- middle schools the Holocaust is a book just called The Holocaust by a woman named B. Statler. And she deals with a sto- story. She has a chapter in that book about Kristallnacht, the horrible uh, uh, pogrom that took place in Germany from November 9th and 10th in 1938. 600 Jews are killed. Uh, most of the, over th- uh, synagogues are burned. Over 5,000 Jews are taken away. Uh, uh, buildings are burned. Businesses are raided. Uh, the vandalism of homes and whatever. So <clears throat> in this, she, she brings forth two eyewitness reports that are very, very interesting. One of them is that after a young girl, probably the age of these middle schoolers, went back into um, her, her home, she saw, she found that there was a, that the piano in the home had all of its strings. And I think there's something like 230 strings on a piano. This is more than, there's 88 keys, but there's more than a one string on each key. But she found that every single uh, no, every single string had been meticulously cut. And then there's another eyewitness report, again from a young girl, who said she went back into her home after hiding and after uh, the um, the Nazis and the, the brown shirts had, run, run, had uh, left her home. And she had a mama doll, a ceramic mama doll. And uh, she found that every... Uh, Part of that mom doll had been destroyed, but in a straight right. The head had been taken off, the right arm, the left arm, the right leg, the left leg. And that's really weird because if you think about this type of destruction, to um, destroy a piano, all you need is a, is a sledgehammer and you hit the soundboard. And to destroy a, a ceramic mama doll, all you need is to smash it on a tree or on the wall. But there's a certain meticulousness in this that I think that B. Stadler was brilliant in bringing across to middle schoolers. And if they get it, it's the following. It's that the Nazis not only wanted to destroy the Jewish body, okay, but there was a sort of meticulousness to an obsessive compulsive nature to what they were do- doing. 
and that was to destroy the Jewish soul. What is music? What is music? Music is an aspect of culture. Instead of just taking a sledgehammer, we cut, they cut every single string to destroy our souls. What is a mama doll that a little girl would have play, played with? That's an aspect of her culture and her imagination. And to destroy it in that meticulous way uh, is something else. So the bottom line, and this is why I like Stadler's book, just an example. The bottom line is, is that, that when I'm, that Stadler wants us to understand that it's not just the Jewish body, but the Jewish soul, the Jewish spirit. And that's a message I want kids to come across uh, with. I want them to come away with that. that look, Yes, we've been through difficult times, and certainly the Holocaust is unparalleled. But it's not going to be easy to destroy our soul. It's not going to be easy to destroy our identity and who we are. And you as a seventh or eighth grade child, you have an integral part to play in preserving that identity, okay? And not only not letting somebody cut your strings, and pull out the arms and legs of your doll, but it, but not letting anyone take away your identity as a Jew. You should wear it proudly. You should stand up for it. And here's the other thing. If, and this is what I tell them, and if you encounter anti-Semitism in school, the first thing you do is you tell your parents and then you have them or you call me directly. We had an incident in a middle school this past, past year where, um, where kids were, 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 were telling a young girl, oh, it's too bad you all didn't die in, in the gas chambers. And I want you to know that the next morning I was in that school, uh, in that middle school, and I wasn't going to let anybody see the principal of that school until he saw Rabbi Gutman. It wasn't that difficult, but I got in to see him. And he said, oh, yes, I, I uh, had my assistant principal work, working on that. And I said, uh-uh, that's not it. You've got to have... This has got to go to the top. You're the top person in this school. You're the educational leader. You need to deal with this. And he did. And some of those kids were suspended. And uh, another one uh, uh, left left the school entirely. And then one of them was uh, involved in this. I happened to have known his father. Um, and I didn't, and, and I was pretty sure that he didn't pick this thing up at home. So, so, the, so I called up the father and I said, bring your son in. And, and I showed him a little bit of, uh, of a film about the Nazi Holocaust. We discussed what it was. We discussed, he, this was probably the first time he ever t- t- uh, encountered a rabbi, for sure. Mm. And, and then they walked away and hopefully a change was made. So that's on the middle well, thank you for your advocacy. There's so much on the table. I'll mention that we're going to link to the Statler book, The Holocaust, at voiceforisrael.com in the show notes of this episode. I'll briefly mention to you that a few years ago, I helped break a story here in Chapel Hill, where an elementary school was having a wax museum day, and they were going to allow several children in an elementary school to dress up as Adolf Hitler. And it really took some explaining to get the school to change course because they were starting to dig in on why that's okay. And I remember I wrote a column on it saying, would we ever allow children in elementary school to dress up as as the KKK as part of a wax museum day? Uh, so I, I, I want to ask you this. Oh, and this is the Voice for Israel podcast. Our guest today is Rabbi Fred 
Gottman. So I taught for 10 years in the Brooklyn public schools. Um, I, I am a speech therapist. And in the Brooklyn public schools, many fifth grade teachers assigned and had class discussions on the award-winning children's book titled Number the Stars, which is historical fiction focusing on how the Danish resistance helped save many Jewish lives during World War II. Do you have any concerns about fifth grade classes learning about the Holocaust using such resources? Yeah, okay. There's two parts of that. Uh, I would prefer that they go later because I don't think, I, I think it's very hard not to ask questions, okay? But on the other hand, on the other hand, if, if, if I shift your question, because I, I still, I still think I, I like, like, like it, uh, later on. Uh, I just think it's, um, uh, developmentally and psychologically more pro- appropriate. Um, but there's a certain part of that that would lead me into into what I'm doing, um, particularly with high school kids. Okay, so I have led now 20 trips to Poland and Israel. Probably 17 or 18 of them have been uh, with uh, 11th and 12th graders on something called the International March of the Living. I'm a regional dir- director of the International March of the Living. And also have been extensively involved in, in developing the curriculum for the March. Um, the March of the Living has now taken over a quarter of a million people to Poland and Israel. It started in 1988. Um, and uh, usually there's more than there's uh, people, mostly Jews, although Jews and non-Jews, from, uh, from uh, approximately 40 countries that participate in a march on Holocaust Memorial Day on Yom HaShoah from uh, the death camp of, of Auschwitz to Birkenau. It's a mile and a half walk. Uh, in the earlier days, we had an enormous amount of survivors that would go with us. And by the way, I do think it's wonderful to, if, if you have survivors uh, that are still able to speak, to, to put them in front of, um, of uh, middle school and high school kids. We just lost a wonderful survivor in our community at uh, 94 years old, uh, Hank Brought, who was a survivor of five Nazi concentration camps, who made it his business, um, so to speak, in quotes, to uh, give testimony to anybody that would call him up. He did everything from Fort Bragg to local schools, colleges, universities, and all of that. But going back to the book, look, let me give you another resource. By far, Okay, for teaching the Holocaust, by far the best film is a 50-minute film uh, entitled Genocide that is part of the BBC World at War series. It's far better than anything else. It's all um, original uh, footage. At the end, yes, it's horrific, but in a, a wonderful British style, it approaches it from a historic historical uh, way and how historic and how this developed uh, uh, historically. And the other thing I like about it, if I can be brutally honest, is that this was not this movie was done by the BBC. It wasn't done by Jews. Nobody can can accuse us of um, making a propaganda movie. So anyway, 
I showed I showed teams this movie and we get through all of the horrific stuff. But then I asked the question, okay, now what are we going to do with this? And much of my teaching, much of my teaching uh, in the of the Holocaust, both before we go on this trip, in any courses I've done in the United States, I've done courses for elderly on it, and certainly on the trip itself, it really is what are our responses and what are the hist- uh, the heroic responses of um, of people uh, to absolute evil? Because I think that this is really an important thing. I don't want people to just know that that this particular thing ha- happened. There's a difference between a tragedy and a cata- and a catastrophe. Um, I think it was uh, back in the 1930s uh, that. Uh, um, there was a sociologist, Julian Carr, who wrote uh, that uh, that what happened, something of, of the effect that disasters will always be with us and they'll always harm people, create economic hardship, pandemics, Holocaust storms, whatever. But uh, uh, the sociologist said that the biggest problem is that when cultural protections uh, collapse, that sometimes what follows a... a um, uh, a disaster, which, by the way, for the Germans and, and for the world would have been for the economic meltdown in Germany in, in 1923 and the, and the uh, depression beginning in 1929 in, in the United States and the rest of the world in 1930. But what happens, according to Julian Carr in writing in 1932, is that when cultural protections collapse, then the disaster turns into a catastrophe, and that's what the Holocaust the Holocaust was. Now, having said that, having having said that, I'm interested in how people respond. Some people didn't respond. Okay, the world didn't respond. The United States uh, responded, but did not. But in uh, uh, let twenty seven thousand people a year. Uh, in from 1940 to 1944, 27,000 with 6 million Jews are being uh, killed. The the British uh, uh, shut down Im- Im- immigration. Uh, some people, most of the people walked away. They were either um, bystanders uh, or they were uh, facilitators. But the issue is how do we, What? who were the upstanders? Who were the people that stood up for justice? And that's why the book, which I would use in middle school uh, about was counting the stars is uh, so important because it's important to to talk about Danish resistance. It's important to uh, speak about people like uh, the uh, Westerwheels in um, uh, Holland. It's important to speak about Alexander Schindler. Do you realize that that the movie um, uh, about Alexander Schindler was made 25 years ago? Kids have not seen that movie. They don't know what what it is. Yeah. It's important to talk about these non-Jews who stood up for Jews. And then from there, it's important to understand that there are three types of resistance that we have to teach. And it's this, this is more important than to teach how, in my opinion, although I do teach it, but very briefly, how uh, um, Zyklon B in, in a gas chamber at Auschwitz actually worked. There were three types of Jewish resistance. By, or let me just go back to one thing. These non-Jews who, who saved Jews at, at, at the risk of their lives are true heroes of humanity. And that has to be taught not only to Jews, but to non-Jews as well. I would love, for example, to be invited to a church and teach them about what we call the righteous among the nations. 
teach them these people uh, because it's it's such an incredible story. So getting back to the Jewish part of it. Just real quick, that is such a wonderful programming idea. I need to make a note of that. <laughs> Let's see if we yes. can make that happen. Okay, but please, I, please I, go ahead. I'd love it. Now, yeah. with the Jews, with Jewish, um, whether it's um, high school kids or anyway, even even um, uh, the middle schoolers and certainly with the adults, I want them to know there's three types of, of Jewish resistance. Now, this was developed, this prototype, uh, these, this particular prototype was developed in the 1980s at Yad Vashem in Israel. And the three types of Jewish resistance are as follows. There's, there's spiritual resistance which means I'm going to do anything I can to not be turned into an animal, to not be as uh, uh, Victor Frankl, uh, in Man's Search for Meaning, uses the word dehumanization. I'm not going to allow myself to be dehumanized. I will not be an animal. I will remain a human being. That could be art, prayer, music, music, um, uh, Jewish ritual, uh, whatever, Okay. The second is what's called moral resistance. Moral resistance is when I uh, do something to try to save the life of someone else. I had a friend, Lily Kopecki, who uh, is long gone now, but she was there. at one time she was the chairperson of the uh, Auschwitz Survivors Association, who actually um, uh, was a drug smuggler. Uh, she was working in some sort of facility where there were um, she had access to medicinal drugs, and she smuggled medicinal drugs in her brassiere uh, back to um, the uh, women's camp in, in Auschwitz. That is moral resistance. And, of course, uh, there's always the third type, which is physical or active resistance. But let's go back. Let's go back. Physical active resistance is like the revolts in, in the ghettos, particularly uh, the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt in April 1943, as well as the revolts in, in almost every ghetto, every concentration camp, every death camp, including Treblinka and Auschwitz. There were, after the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt, there were revolts because uh, the word got out from the survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto and people responded. But let's go back to something. Most people don't know that the attack by uh, General Jürgen von Stroop on, on uh, the Warsaw Ghetto in uh, April of 1943 actually occurred on Passover, actually occurred on Passover. It was also, if I remember correctly, the date of Hitler's birthday. And the Jürgen von Stroop, the German general, wanted to give Hitler a uh, birthday present, and that was to wipe out the Jews. There were the 50,000 or so Jews who were left in uh, the Warsaw Ghetto. That number might be high, by the way. But anyway, he wanted to do it. Now, the question is, okay, it happens on Passover. On the eve of Passover, you are uh, watching on the outside of the wall as troops and tanks and everything is, ga is gathering uh, for the attack, the obvious attack tomorrow, which everyone knows is coming. Now, we happen to know because of something called the Onyx Shabbat Archive. Uh, which were hidden. Uh, we uh, in Warsaw Ghetto, and, and I think two-thirds of them were found after the war. They were hidden in, in milk cans. But we know that on that night, people, there was a Passover Seder. 
people had a Passover Seder. And when they came to the line of the Passover Seder, can you imagine this? Pour out your wrath, oh God. What that must have meant to them. We also know that at one of those Passover Seders, they they had no wine, but they somebody had found a beet and they boiled a beet and they 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 did the four cups of wine with beet juice. And can you imagine what that meant? What what did they they were drinking as they were drinking this red juice? They, they, they were saying they were saying this is representative of the blood that is 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 going to have to happen when God takes revenge and when the world takes revenge on these absolute animals who are killing my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, my son, and my daughter, my husband, and my wife. Okay? And this is this this is spiritual resistance. And so you want to tell me that that, that story is not more important to teach young uh, uh, Jews, or for that matter, anyone, okay, than how a gas chamber works? So a lot of the things that I do um, in the Holocaust is focus on this. Now, you can say there wasn't enough of it, and you would be right, okay? There's not enough resistance to the evils in our world today, whether it's locking up children or not wearing a mask or whatever you want to say, and you would be right. But there were people, there were people, uh, not only the uh, who were good leaders, Okay, but people who did things to create passageways for that would help people travel from a room called fear to another room called hope. I'm sort of envious of your congregation because I wish I would have had this Holocaust education and Jewish education growing up. Uh, It's really inspiring to hear how you approach this sensitive, difficult, important topic. This is the Voice for Israel podcast. I'm Peter Reitzes. Our guest today is Rabbi Fred Gutman. You can find the show notes at voiceforisrael.com. Let me share with you uh, briefly my own personal experience with being exposed to the Holocaust and then ask you a question about it. So when I was eight years old, I walked into my parents' bedroom and my mom was watching a documentary about the Holocaust. And I don't recall at that time knowing anything about the Holocaust. Uh, I saw the emaciated bodies clinging to the fence of a concentration camp and piles and piles of bodies, small mountains of bodies, really, of dead, emaciated Jews. And my mother was crying and she called me over and told me for the first time about the Holocaust. And it felt traumatic, even though I didn't have the word trauma in my vocabulary at the time. However, as an adult, this memory, it doesn't cause me pain. Um, I know other Jewish adults who learned about the Holocaust in similar ways. So One of the many questions I have for you is, when do you think children are old enough to see those photographs and those videos of the camps and of the bodies? Like, When can children see the horrors of the Holocaust? Seventh and eighth grade. Okay. And and I- I, I'm I'm, I'm very protective of children. You know what? Sure. Of course. When this thing happened to this little girl in this middle school- and I went over there and demanded 
see the principal the next next day. The parents didn't ask me to do that. Okay, no one asked me to do that. I did that because, as far as I'm concerned, this girl in the seventh—I think she was in the seventh grade—is my daughter. Okay, these children that are in our religious school or, or and high school program, and, and by the way. A hundred, almost a hundred percent of our kids continue all the way through the twelfth grade. Okay, we don't have post bar about mitzvah dropout, but a hundred percent of our kids, and we even have some kids that come come in uh, when they move to town, they get involved in our educational program because because thank God it's that good, and it's a tribute to the to not only myself but particularly to my, our educator Rabbi Andy Corn. But these children that we are educating, they are like children. And I am very protective of them. And I'm not going to do anything to harm them. And I'm not going to, and if I can prevent it, I'm not going to allow anyone else to harm them. So I don't want to take that chance with the younger kids. I have not had, I'll just give you, I'll just give you an example of, of sure. how sensitive these things can be. Um, do you remember after the uh, shooting in Newtown, we got um, we took fifth to the eighth grade, uh, eighth grades, and we got them together and we had I had a social worker lead a discussion with these kids about how they felt, and what insecurity that that had. And then we got together in a circle in a large room and we sang some songs of, of peace and we did prayers. We did a prayer for healing and whatever. I had two parents call me up after afterwards, okay, complaining, okay, complaining that I didn't ask them for permission to expose their children to this to this horrible thing that had happened. Now, they're right. They're, they are right. On the other hand, I probably had 20 parents who called us up and said, thank you for doing this. Do you, do you understand? So yeah. I... And and a man, you know, I, I just can't imagine if parents parents have a right to to protect their kids from from these things. I happen to think that in this particular case, the parents didn't understand that their kids were getting older, uh, and that <laughs> Newtown is all over the news. You can't you can't uh, go to a fifth or sixth grade kid and say uh, you know ignore what just happened or turn the TV TV off. It's not so easy to do with that age group. But on the on the other hand, they as parents have that right, and I respect that right. Now, if that can happen with fifth grade parents um, with Newtown, uh, or they're worried about their kids with Newtown, yeah, I don't want to take the chance. They, these are again, I come back to it. I feel that these are my children. They are my children. I'm their rabbi, and that's really important. And I don't want to do anything and take any chance that could um, do something that could possibly psychologically damage them because developmentally and psychologically they're not ready. So we have a mutual friend, Rabbi, I'm not going to say on air who it is, but this man has told me several times about his daughter who in the third grade in Hebrew school was taught about the Holocaust. And the word this man uses is scarred that this is a proud Jew, a proud Zionist. And he said third grade Hebrew school scarred his daughter for life. And she moved away from synagogue um, starting at that moment. It really traumatized her to learn about the Holocaust at that young of an age. 
Uh, and of course, other children weren't traumatized. Um, do you hear these type of stories and what do you make of it? Well, I don't hear them because I don't, it's not part of our educational uh, 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 framework. And it's not, and obviously from what you've heard, it's not a part of my educational uh, philosophy. Um, I, I think that's a terrible tragedy. We lost a Jew. We lost a Jew because somebody uh, did something uh, educationally that I con- would consider to be fundamentally un- unsound uh, to do. You know, Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time and a purpose for everything under heaven. There is a time to teach the Holocaust. And in the third grade, that is not the time. The third grade is a time to teach being charity, the time to teach uh, uh, how, how to wave a lulav in a natrog on, on Sukkot. The third grade is a time to say, aren't we proud to be be Jews? Okay, and I love my Passover Seder. And when I open up the door for Elijah, I open it up because, boy, next year, there's got to be peace in the world. The, the pandemic's got to got to end. There's got to be racial justice. And I don't care that I'm just in the third grade. I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something because this is who I am as a Jew. And I have no problem with teaching um, uh, the need for racial uh, uh, equity or equality uh, to a third, third grader because it comes right out. Who was, who was the first Martin Luther King that, that said, spoke truth to power? Heck, it was Moses. Let my people go. Let my people go. So, you know, you, you do that and it puts it in a framework where the kid says, I'm part of a people that spoke truth to power, that spoke up for justice. And that's what, if a third grader learns that at eight years old, hey, hey fabulous. Hmm. I, I'm struggling so much with, with this as a parent. I have a 10-year-old and an eight-year-old, and we're such proud Jews, and I want them to know about the Holocaust. Uh, and my children are starting to ask me about World War II. And I've told my daughter now for a year, it started when she was about seven, that we will have a talk about World War II. And it's going to be a, a, a heavy talk. A lot of very sad, awful things happened. And I've told her straight up, I don't want to tell you yet because it's very, it's very hard stuff, but I'm going to tell you when you're a little bit older. Uh, and then I have these discussions with my Israeli friends and they, um, not all Israelis, of course, but I've spoken to two local Israelis who have said to me, yeah, um, you know, in Israel, we talk about the Holocaust at a very young age. We treat this very differently. Um, have you heard this? And what do you make of that? Well, first of all, I lived in Israel for 13 years. And there it's a different thing because on Holocaust Memorial Day at eight o'clock at night, there's a siren that goes off and everybody stands at attention for two minutes. And in, even in Israel, okay, or I should even say, especially in Israel, there's an understanding about the need to be age-appropriate in your destruction. Part of the Israeli culture, is, which is very different from ours, is that, yes, we do have a history where others have tried to hurt us, okay? And some of the times others have, have killed us. But aren't we lucky today that we live in a free Jewish state where our, our, our army defends us and where we can grow up in freedom to become uh, the Jews and the human beings that we are destined to become. 
And that's their culture. And because of that, it is so incredibly uh, different. They're not showing horrific pictures to third graders. Okay. But what they are, what they are doing is wrapping the Holocaust education into an appreciation of Jewish nationalism and, and Zionism. And that makes it very, very different. And that's why your Israeli friends will tell you that, but they might not understand the, I, I would imagine, I would hope that they do, but they, do, they need to understand the cultural difference between teaching the Shoah, Holocaust in Israel, as opposed to teaching it here. Mm. And I, I want you to help me to better understand something. And you, you talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the conversation. Um, my own children, who I said are 10 and 8, they've been learning about slavery and segregation and civil rights since kindergarten and probably in pre-K as well. And I fully embrace and support this. Um, my daughter's had on her wall since kindergarten uh, a, a poster that her teacher made of famous civil rights leaders. And we're very proud to have that. And so my question is, why am I, as a parent, okay and supportive of a five-year-old being uh, learning about slavery, but I'm so careful about a young child learning about the Holocaust? Can, can, you help, can you help me grapple with this and understand it? Again, it has to do with the cultural uh, goals of the educational fr- uh, framework. And uh, in this, you know, I, can't, I, I never designed a curriculum for teaching slavery. We've, uh, what we've done in our congregation is that we've helped facilitate dialogue um, with um, high school kids, with juniors and seniors in high school, with an African-American church in, in town uh, about uh, slavery and, uh, um, and as for that matter, the Holocaust. Okay, so we, we've done We've we've done that, but I I I I just don't think it's the same thing. I, I think this is where I, the point I was making at, at first. It's 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 just a very different sort of thing. So if I were you, uh, I'd want my kid to have a picture of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel marching in Selma uh, into in, two, in um, what is it two thousand fifteen in nineteen in uh, nineteen sixty five across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, arm, arm and on with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Now, Heschel got a, a Heschel, in a way, you could consider him a Holocaust survivor because he fled Germany and came to Cincinnati before the Holocaust uh, occurred. One of the, probably the greatest um, American rabbi and thinker of the 20th century. Uh, but, uh, you know, he was, he studied with Martin Luther King and I, I'd want them to know about that. And I want them to know of other Rabbis who and Jewish leaders who've been in, involved in the pursuit of, of racial justice. And they didn't just do it because they were good people. They did it because this is the way we were raised as Jews. Moses said, let my people go. Uh, the Jewish people say every year, next year in Jerusalem, next year there should be peace. Next year there should be justice and compassion and equality and peace for all. This is who we are, okay? So I'm very proud to be to be Jewish. I'm very proud, I'd say, tell my daughter, where I, in your case, that you care about the, these issues. And as you grow up, uh, there will come a time when 
you will add your knowledge that will un- that will help you understand that it's even more important. Here's a great example. Okay, it's possible that three hundred and fifty thousand Roma or what are impossible, what we improperly call gypsies, were murdered in the Holocaust. There were only two groups of people that were um, targeted for genocide. There were the Roma and the Jews. So when Eichmann is brought to trial in in Israel in in 1960, they charge him with crimes against the Jewish people. And then survivors came to get on Hausner, the the prosecutor said, oh, no, oh, no, you can't just charge him with crimes against the Jewish people. You have to charge him with crimes against the, the humanity because there's no one that's going to try him for what he did. And for, I mean, I, listen, he was he was in charge of transportation more than in the Nazi regime. More than 70 percent of the people who were murdered came through his control at one time, time or another. And they said, no, you've got to charge him not only with crimes against the Jewish people, but you've got to charge them with crimes against humanity because no one else is going to stand up and bring this man to justice for what he did for the Roma. And that's something that Israel did. That's something that I'm proud that Israel did. And that's something I would say to my daughter that I want you to do. When you see injustice, don't be a bystander, become an upstander. Mm -hmm. Those are great points. And as you were speaking, it occurred to me what I really need to do, because the schools here in Chapel Hill are very open to it. I need to offer to come into my children's classrooms and to do a short lesson on Herschel and civil rights and Martin Luther King, because that's a story that I need to know better. And it's a story that I'm sure that the classrooms in Chapel Hill would welcome a parent to come in and do a short lesson on. Offhand, do you happen to know of a children's book with Martin Luther King and the Heschel story in it? I I, I really don't. Uh, <laughs> let me just tell you yeah. something about that. On the um, in nineteen uh, sorry in two thousand fourteen, I uh, went on a, a pilgrimage to Selma with uh, John Lewis, uh, Congressman Lewis. And, um, you know, it was very, ni- very nice. And in 2015, which was the anniversary of the 50th anniversary, uh, I called up a, a bunch of uh, Jewish organizations and said, are you going to sell my, is there going to be a, um, a commemoration? I know we'll go in just a second. Okay. Yeah. I'll be with you. That's my grandson. <laughs> I, I love that. it. Love it. So I, I have to, I have to wrap this up in just a little bit. But anyway, here's the thing. Here's the thing. So we, so I organized on a national level uh, the uh, commemoration in Selma of the 50th anniversary of the um, march uh, of uh, the Bloody Sunday March, and we had Dr. Heschel's daughter there. We had the leader, Rabbi Jonah Pesner, of the Religious Action Center. Uh, we had wonderful music. We had Reverend William Barber, who I think you know. And okay, just a second, let me finish. And we also um, uh, we also had Peter Yarrow, Peter Paul and Mary. Um, mm. He did this. We there's only six Jewish families in that that community now, uh, left in Selma, Alabama. But we had 400 people in that synagogue, and then we came out and marched across that bridge. Now, I want to tell you something that didn't happen because I was dedicated to civil rights and all of this, which I am. 
that happened, uh, Peter, because I'm a Jew. And that's who I am. And that's part of my culture. And that's part of what I think God means for me to do. So that's, as you see, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to cut this a little bit short, but I, um, I, I appreciate this. Um, you know, is there any last words that I need to say? Well, I can hear your grandson. You've been very generous with your time. I want to thank you, Rabbi Fred Gutman, for coming on the Voice for Israel podcast, and we hope we can get you back soon. Okay. Thank you very much, Peter, and, and keep up the good work. You know, uh, uh, podcasts like this are incredibly important, especially at, at this time when so many social constructs are, are seem to be breaking down. We need to remind ourselves um, of the goodness of people and um, that that things will get better, and that we should have hope for a day when not only is the pandemic gone, but uh, there's more uh, understanding and compassion and peace in our world. Thank you very much, and, and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.